0: Well, good morning. Still a few people awake, which is great. Um, If you've got a Bible, could you turn with me to page 927? There's Bibles near you. I am English, so you will want to check that what I say is actually true. Um, Super. Let me pray, and then I'll tell you what we're doing today. Father God, you are so... Wonderfully kind to us. You've given us this great weather. You've given us this opportunity to be together. You've given us your word. You've given us each other. You've given us the grace in order that we might concentrate in this time and hear from you. So, Lord, please may we make the best use of this time. Father, where we're um, a bit foggy and a bit tired. Father, would you give us grace and wake us up? And would you speak to us clearly in a way that we cannot dismiss? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you were here, um, we were looking at uh, God being sovereign over his mission to the world. We saw in every situation that God was planning ahead, that he was working next door, that he was standing beside, and that he was sitting above. So we're going to continue... Um, the story today. Um, we're going to go uh, to Ephesus. We're in Acts chapter 9, 18 uh, and verse 24. And we're going to read it as we go through because in this section there are four distinct scenes which I want to show you. We're all making the same point. And the point is that it is through Paul's apostolic gospel that King Jesus is at work in the world, through Paul's apostolic gospel, that King Jesus is at work in the world. So let's start here. Christian Eberhardt worked for 14 months as a thoracic surgeon at the University Clinic of Erlangen Hospital in Germany. He boasted a medical degree from Oxford University, a stellar CV working in lots of the most prestigious hospitals in Europe, And during his time in Ergoland, he performed 190 operations, many of which were open chest operations. He even gave two lectures to uh, medical students on surgical techniques in the university lecture halls. However, 14 months into his employment, Somebody took a closer look at his CV and it was discovered that Christian Eberhardt was a complete fraud. He had never been a medical student. He'd never visited Oxford. And up until getting the surgical job, he had been a securities analyst at Deutsche Bank in Munich. He was, in every sense of the word, a bogus doctor. He was convicted, he's currently serving a very lengthy prison sentence in Germany. And summing up the case, the judge offered the following remark. Christian Eberhardt is a pathological liar who has seemingly endless supplies of criminal intent. Just imagine if you were one of those patients that had sat on Christian Eberhardt's operating table as he reached for his knife and he realised that he'd never been to a medical lecture in his life. How unnerving is that? It's actually shocking. Frauds are shocking. People that are bogus are shocking. People who claim to be one thing and do another are incredibly dangerous. Imposters are deeply unsettling. Conmen, so uncertainty. And this is the big theme that sits behind this massive two-volume work that Luke has undertaken. Luke, the Gospel, and then Acts, they go together. And at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, Luke tells us why he's written this document to his friend Theophilus. And the reason is that Theophilus might have certainty about the things that he's been taught, about the Lord Jesus, he might have certainty. Why is certainty important? Well, because if we're certain about something, we're confident about something. And if we're confident about something, we'll be on the front foot about something. So as we learn about the legitimacy of the mission and work of the Lord Jesus, if we're confident about that, we'll be on board with the mission and work of the Lord Jesus. And I think one of the reasons that Theophilus is so unnerved is because the way the mission of the Lord Jesus is playing out. He's uncertain as to whether they've got it wrong and it started to become a bit fraudulent, a bit bogus, a bit loosey-goosey. He has particular issues about Paul. How is it that the apostle Paul, in 10 years, seems to have ripped up the rule book of how God has been at work in the world for thousands of years? That leaves him feeling very unnerved. Why is it that as Paul goes around his mission that he says, came down from the risen and exalted Lord Jesus who he met on the Damascus road, how is it That as Paul goes out into the world, the Jews who should have lapped it up are utterly rejecting of him. And the Gentiles, who have never really been a big feature of God's work in the world, are flooding in everywhere. Have you ever thought how much shorter your Bible would be if Paul looked a little bit more legitimate? Do you know how many of Paul's letters in the New Testament are him defending the authenticity of his apostleship? Corinthians, two Corinthians, Galatians, one Timothy, two Timothy, Titus, one Thessalonians, a bit of two Thessalonians. If Paul looked a little bit more ordinary, if what Paul was doing looked a little bit more like Peter and looked a little bit more like John, looked a little bit more Jewish, looked a little bit more synagogue focused, our Bibles would be a lot shorter. Theophilus is worried that Paul is a fraud. And I think as Luke comes to the end of this massive story that he's been building since Luke chapter one, is saying, no, Paul is where it's at. Paul is the business. What Paul is doing is how the risen and exalted Lord Jesus, King of everything, is at work in the world. And I think we're going to see that explicitly here in um, Acts 18 and 19. It's interesting that if we had time, we'd go on to Acts 20 and Acts 28. And I think the one thing you'll see amidst all of those trials and difficulties and shipwrecks and problems and threats is that the people stay with Paul stay alive and the people who don't die And that's a really profound theological statement that Luke is making there. Stay with Paul you live, leave Paul you die. And that's not just a problem for Theophilus is it? That's a problem for our world. Our world really likes Jesus. Most people have a lot of time for Jesus. Nobody outside of the church has time for the Apostle Paul. He's just very narrow. His sexual ethics, that's a problem to us. His view about how you run the church, that's a problem to us. We love Jesus, says the world. The apostle Paul, we're not so sure. And Luke is saying, in order that we might hear clearly, that it is the gospel, the apostolic gospel of Paul, that is how the risen Lord Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. I think this is, um, this episode in Ephesus is where the whole um, sixth section of Acts has been leading. So, Paul went first to Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. That was in the. Um, area of Macedonia, there were three cities he visited. He then moved on to Achaia, which was Athens and Corinth that we saw last week. Three in Macedonia, two in Achaia, and he visits one city in Asia, Ephesus. And whenever you're writing and you come into um, a narrowing of the story, you're always trying to draw attention to the place. That it ends. I want to say to you today that Paul's apostolic gospel is how King Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. And by apostolic, let me be really clear what I mean. I'm using it as a technical term, a technical term for one personally chosen by the risen Lord Jesus to be his messengers out into the world. A title that's only been held by 13 people in the history of the world. The 11 remaining um, disciples after Judas killed himself. Matthias, who in Acts chapter 1 is added to make up a 12. And then the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, who, is, who meets the risen Lord Jesus. And is commissioned to do this work. So we come to Ephesus. If Athens was like the Oxford of the ancient world, Corinth was like the Las Vegas of the ancient world, then Ephesus was like Salem in America or Glastonbury down in the West Country. It was a place of magic and mysticism. Yes, it was a great Roman city, but it was full of occultic practice. It was a place where magic was big, business. It was a place where mystery was the way that the city worked. It was a place of malevolent spirits. It was at the time of Paul's visit the second city in the Roman Empire. It had had a tumultuous history. It had been conquered by the Persians and then the Greeks came and took it over and now the Romans are in charge. The Romans also decided that because it was such an unruly city, because of all these myths and legends and magical practices that were in place, they decided that they would deport a load of Jews to Ephesus, thinking that the Jews would help calm everyone down and get the city back under control. And so when Paul walks in, there's a big Jewish community But out in the wider city, it is full of magic, necromancing, evil spirits, and all kinds of occultic practices. And so our passage today contains a lot of movement. And as we look through, I want you to look for two things. Firstly, where's the action taking place in these four scenes? Is it inside the synagogue or outside the synagogue? So as we look at the four scenes, inside the synagogue or outside the synagogue? And the second pattern I want you to see is that there's something suboptimal that's then replaced by something optimal. Something bad or deficient that is then replaced by something best. And so look with me. Um, Acts 18, uh, verses 24 to 28. And we're going to see Paul's gospel is climactic. Paul's gospel is climactic. Let me read. they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Jesus. And so before Paul gets to Ephesus, we meet a guy called Apollos. He was a Jew. He is from Alexandria. Alexandria is on the northern tip of Egypt. And Alexandria is famous for having the most prestigious university, the most prestigious library of learning. It's got a famous school of Jewish scholarship. Did you know that the reason why your um, personal Amazon device, the Alexa, the reason that's called Alexa is because of Alexandria. Because Alexandria had in it a library where you could find out anything. So when you sit in your kitchen and say, Alexa, please say the news, the reason she's called Alexa is because of Alexandria, that Jeff Bezos is making a claim that actually this little device knows absolutely everything, like the library in Alexandria did. And Apollos has a cracking biography. He was an eloquent man. He was good at public speaking. He was a real orator. He was competent in the scriptures. He knew stuff. He was well-schooled in all the bits that we know, like Isaiah and Exodus, but he was also good at all the bits we don't know, like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Hosea. And he was fervent in spirit. And he was able to teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. This is a very gifted bloke. A very gifted bloke who's gone to a really good university who is doing a really good job of teaching people about Jesus. But there was a gap in his knowledge, there was a deficiency. Though he knew only the baptism of John, there was a shortcoming in his understanding. He knew Jesus in the Old Testament. He'd heard about John and this great call to repentance because the Messiah was coming. But the details of Jesus' life, he's a bit fuzzy on. He's not all that clear about. Therefore, when he began to preach in the synagogue on a Saturday, he spoke boldly. But Priscilla and Aquila, who we met last week in Corinth, they heard him. They sat there, they took notes, and after the sermon, during the tea and coffee afterwards, they took Apollos aside and they said, we've got a few little pointers for you. Do you see that plays you all on side? You've got a brilliant minister in Athol who works really hard at his preaching, but there's lots of things you can do, so the tea and coffee time afterwards you can say, have you thought about? Did you see this in the passage? I can't tell you how much I've been helped by just normal members of the congregation showing me things that I hadn't seen myself. There's remarkable humility from Apollos. Apollos, this he could have got out his doctorate degree from the Alexandria University, but no, he listened to Priscilla and Aquila. And they helped him explain Um, the way of God more accurately. So he was competent in the scriptures. He did teach accurately the things concerning Jesus. But after doing an intense Bible school with Priscilla and Aquila, he taught them more accurately. He was greatly helped. They schooled Apollos in Paul's apostolic gospel. The thing that they'd listened to Paul speak over and over again for the 18 months they were together in Corinth when Paul was a lodger in their house. And it seems that as Priscilla and Aquila taught Apollos Paul's apostolic gospel, things started falling into place. That Apollos now saw that this person and work of the Lord Jesus now seen in high definition in Paul's apostolic gospel it made sense of everything the things that he knew and saw quite dimly he now saw crystal clear the person and work of the Lord Jesus that had been predicted in the Old Testament was now staring him in the face as he listens to Paul And so he goes back to Ephesus community, uh, back to Corinth Community Church and he tells them that there's a pastoral vacancy back in Corinth. He's in Ephesus and he sees that there's a pastoral vacancy back in Corinth because Paul has left Corinth. And so he asked the elders and they encouraged him to go and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. This is just the guy you need. He's going to teach you accurately and powerfully the things concerning the Lord Jesus. And so he goes and see the difference. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public. He did it powerfully. Now, seeing how the whole thing fitted together... Seeing how what Paul said made sense of everything that he already knew. His preaching that was accurate now became preaching that was powerful. And just to make it absolutely explicit, he showed them by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The Christ being Jesus is exactly how Paul's ministry has been always described since he crossed into Philippi. Apothec. Apollos and Paul are now cheek by jowl. You could superimpose their ministries onto each other. Because Apollos has seen that Paul's apostolic gospel is climactic. It's climactic. It's what the whole thing is pointing to. The way Paul helps us see how the whole thing fits together is absolutely necessary. If we're going to fully understand all that Jesus is doing in the world, something suboptimal. Apollos got it, but he didn't get it. Priscilla and Aquila taught him, and he got it. And it made sense, and he was such a help to so many people back in Corinth. Paul's apostolic gospel is climactic, but see next that Paul's apostolic gospel is apostolic. Let me read. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And so Paul, having left Corinth, is on his way to Ephesus. And just in the country surrounding Ephesus, he found some disciples. These people... Knew about John, but they didn't really know about Jesus, and they didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They'd listened to John's preaching and were convicted of their need of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. But unfortunately, perhaps they left before Jesus turned up to be baptized and take on public ministry himself. These people were not Christians but they were really close. These people were not fully in, but they were definitely open and eager to find out more. They are fertile ground, plowed by the preparatory ministry of John, and all they're doing is waiting for the good seed of the gospel to be planted in them. When Paul meets them just outside Ephesus, they're ignorant of Jesus and he is pleased to tell them. It is therefore perfect that Paul is there to sow the apostolic gospel into these eager explorers. Lots of people have read this passage wrongly, suggesting you need some kind of apostle to lay on his hands in order that you can receive the Holy Spirit. Be clear, friends, that's not what this is saying. This is bolstering Paul's apostolic credentials. That what Paul does here, is exactly what Peter and John did in (coughs) Caesarea. This is exactly what happened in Samaria when Peter and John went up to meet the Samaritans. Paul's Paul's hand laying ritual is not about the transmission of the Holy Spirit but all about who the apostle Paul is and the fact that he's absolutely legitimate and in line with all the apostles that have gone before him. Anybody who wants to malign Paul as some rogue charlatan doing a renegade ministry out of kilter with the program, plan and promise of God is cut off at the knees outside Ephesus here because Paul does apostolic things saying he's utterly legitimate. And his ministry is utterly congruous with everything that's gone before. This scene is Luke certifying to his friend Theophilus and us that Paul is absolutely legitimate. And this is absolutely how the King Jesus is at work in the world, through Paul. Theophilus needn't be perturbed. That Paul has gone off-piste, or he's got a platform that he doesn't deserve, or he's spouting things that are not true. This episode is King Jesus, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, rubber-stamping Paul the Apostle and his message. Just to make it clear, verse 7, there were about 12 men in all. A wonderful symmetry going on. This detail makes it absolutely explicit, this Jesus who so powerfully equipped the believers in Jerusalem at Pentecost, there were 12 of them, is the same Jesus who stands behind his servant as he proclaims the rule and reign of Christ abroad and seals it with an echo of Pentecost where 12 disciples receive the Holy Spirit at the very end, the very farthest reaches of gospel ministry so far. Again, notice that all the action is happening outside of the synagogue. And again, see that there's something suboptimal. People who know all about repentance and nothing about Jesus, and it's replaced by something that is optimal. Twelve new believers welcomed as citizens in the kingdom of King Jesus. As Paul's apostolic gospel is sown into their hearts. And so see this, Paul's gospel is prolific. Prolific. Acts 19, 8 to 10. Let me read. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And so as is Paul's pattern, Paul goes to a new place and he preaches in the synagogue. Reasoning and persuading, he's on the front foot with the gospel. And he's preaching about King Jesus ruling and reigning over everything and what it means to be part of the kingdom of God. Paul's message in the synagogue is that this Jesus is God's promised anointed king. And you have an opportunity now to change your allegiance from self to being part of his people before he comes in judgment. He says the promised king has now come, is ascended and is ruling and reigning over all things at the right hand of God. And he demands everybody, everywhere to lay down their arms against his kingdom rule, repent of their rebellion, and switch sides by pledging their allegiance to this king in order to find eternal life in his eternal kingdom. That's what Paul's been preaching, but verse 9, just as happened in Corinth, they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. It's that phrase again, the son, the... Melts the wax, hardens the clay. So as they hear, they become hard and impenetrable, stubborn. They can't attack Paul's logic, so they speak evil of him and the disciples. And so he withdraws. And he takes all the believers and he reasons daily in the hall of Tyrannus. That doesn't sound like a particularly welcoming place, does it? If you name your hall after a ferocious dinosaur, I think you're in real problems. And he continues for two years, the longest stint that he does anything in Acts. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. How prolific is that ministry? Everybody everywhere has a chance to hear and respond to the gospel. The gospel takes such root and bears such fruit that the very next episode in Acts is that all the people who spend all of their times making little idols get really cross because nobody wants their idols anymore. Wouldn't it be great if the gospel in Edinburgh took such root that all of the people who made their money in unhelpful, illicit ways started complaining to the council that they couldn't make a living anymore. For the people running saunas and brothels, all the pimps, all the drug runners, all the drug dealers. If God did something in Edinburgh that was so prolific as people heard the gospel that all the people in these kind of economies put up their hands and said, We can't cope, this is wrong, we need to shut down the gospel because we can't make a living anymore. That's what's gone on in Asia. This massive area. Everybody had heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is ministry on an unprecedented scale. Unprecedented breadth, unprecedented depth. And this is where Luke has been pointing his whole um, sixth section of Acts. All the evidence Luke is presenting to Theophilus and us is that Paul's apostolic gospel is the vehicle through which King Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. And again, see that the significant action is taking place outside of the synagogue. That's going to be more and more a feature. See as well that something suboptimal, the stubbornness of the Jews, is replaced by something optimal. All the residents of Asia hearing the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And here's the last. Paul's gospel is... And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Verses 11 and 12, we get an astonishing picture of astonishing miracles done at a distance through the hands of Paul. A healing handkerchief and an exercising apron. They're commonplace in Ephesus. Paul's ministry is dynamic, it's powerful. Even things that have touched him do the Lord's work in people's lives even after he's moved on. Miracles that sound very similar to people being healed um, as Peter's shadow passed over them, as Peter made his way to the temple to preach in Acts chapter 5. There's a similarity there. Peter's shadow in Jerusalem, Paul's handkerchief in Ephesus. All saying that Paul is not some fraudulent faker, he's a million percent legitimate. And his mission and message are how King Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. And see, there's a stunning contrast. Paul is performing exorcisms using a handkerchief at a distance unknowingly. And seven Jewish exorcists can't even um, exercise an evil spirit in the life of one man in the house when they've got a captive audience. What Paul does with a handkerchief, seven skilled Jewish exorcists can't do when they put their whole effort into it. They can't even help a possessed man. And Paul is helping people left, right and centre unknowingly. And do you see, they try to appropriate the power of the gospel without believing the gospel. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But the evil spirit knows a fraud. Jesus I know and Paul I recognise, but who are you? Do you see there that Luke again is making the explicit point on the lips of the demon-possessed man? Jesus I know and Paul I recognise. Those two go together. How is Jesus at work in the world? Well, he's at work in the world through Paul and his mission. Do you see how the man... The evil spirit spots a fraud and he leaps on them. And he masters them. And he beats them, and they leave naked and wounded. This word leaped is a very unusual word. It's only happened, actually been used once other time in Acts. Do you remember the very first miracle in Acts chapter 3 where Peter and John are on the way to the synagogue and at the gate called Beautiful there's the blind beggar? And they heal him in Jesus' name. And it says that he leapt up with joy. So it seems when the gospel is preached, people leap up with joy. When people preach the gospel from unbelieving hearts, they're leapt upon and beaten and left wounded and running naked from the house. What Paul's handkerchief can do at a distance with ridiculous nonchalance seven Jewish exorcists fail to do in the actual house of an actual man possessed by an actual evil spirit. Judaism is now utterly vacuous. There's no power there anymore. It's totally impotent and has been absolutely superseded by the power of Paul's gospel. See as well, the unstoppable king sovereignly uses this event to further the cause of his kingdom. Do you see how it became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks? And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This was frontline news. Jewish exorcists proven to be fraudulent. Paul seems to be legit is the headline. And all the people start believing. Jesus' name was extolled. It was considered holy and honoured. And not only that, but there was dynamic repentance. Repentance that was so deep, it didn't just penetrate to people's hearts, it penetrated to people's wallets. The people who had been involved in all of this occultic magic practice, they didn't just put all their scrolls on eBay to try and profit from, they burnt them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a huge amount of money. And these people, because they saw that being on board with Jesus was more important than anything, just had a massive bonfire in the middle of the square. This is a deep work of the Lord Jesus in the world, and it's brought about through Paul's apostolic gospel. There is a sense of triumph in verse 20, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Prevail mightily. Friends, we come into land and there is a remarkable flip reversal that has happened in this remarkable chapter. Theophilus was worried that Paul might be bogus and that his message might be erroneous and his ministry might be illegitimate. Be clear as we leave as we leave this episode in Ephesus that reverberating in our hearts should be the idea that the shoe is on completely the other foot it's not just that Paul's message and ministry is legitimate it's that Paul's message and ministry is the only thing that is legitimate how is King Jesus powerfully at work in the world? well he's powerfully at work in the world through the gospel the apostolic gospel of Paul, and only through the apostolic gospel of Paul. Try to leave Paul, you leave everything. Try to separate Paul and Jesus, you lose them both. It is Paul's gospel that is how Jesus is at work in the world. Everything that's not aligned with Paul's apostolic gospel is therefore fraudulent, fake, deceitful, impotent, erroneous, and erosive. This is frightening. There are literally thousands of churches up and down the country and hundreds of thousands around the world that are completely bogus, utterly charlatan, demonically deceptive, because they've left Paul behind. Or they've seated to mitigate his influence on their gatherings. Luke wants to say Paul's apostolic gospel is how Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. Whether these churches are liberal in all its forms, or those that like Jesus' ethics but what none of the demands that Paul makes and finds that totally disgusting. Liberalism in all its types where we save save ourselves, not by repenting and believing in Jesus, but by pulling our socks up and ticking boxes. Or sylphism in all its shades where Jesus is not a glorious end in himself, but a means of getting for ourselves through him. Unless we've got Paul's apostolic gospel front and center in our lives and in our churches, there is no hope that this is where Jesus will be powerfully at work in the world. Friends, there is one way, and only one way that King Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. And that is through believing, living out, and proclaiming Paul's apostolic gospel. The gospel that makes sense of all of the Old Testament and magnifies the person and work of the Lord Jesus. The gospel that is proclaimed by a legitimate apostle. Whom God used to clarify the significance of Jesus' person and work through the rest of the New Testament. Paul's apostolic gospel that is prolific, that goes global and turns the world upside down. And Paul's apostolic gospel that is dynamic. Because standing behind the legitimate messenger and the legitimate message is King Jesus. who's the absolute boss of absolutely everything. And nothing can stand in his way. Paul's apostolic gospel is how how Jesus is powerfully at work in the world. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you that this episode at the end of Ephesus, at the end of Paul's open ministry in Ephesus, Father, thank you that that powerfully clarifies the great servant that he is to the church. And so Lord, pray that we would be Paul's apostolic gospel people in order that we might be Jesus' people. Father, help us work really hard at your word. Father, help us see all that you have in it. Father, help us live in accordance to it. And help us be those that are proclaiming a message that is clear and powerful. Because it's in accord with all that King Jesus wants people to know. So Lord, bless us and help us. Strengthen us and sharpen us. And Father, as your word is preached... Father God, may Jesus be extolled and may our lives and the lives of others be transformed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.